Today we're going to be in 1 Peter 3. And the last time we started uh, this series on submission, we talked about uh, giving the, the government authority as Christians being good citizens and submission. You look it up in the dictionary, basically it's a voluntary yielding. It's a show of deference. And today we're going to continue that line of thought. And, you know, we're going to have some fun. Okay, we're going to have some fun with this, whether you like it or not. Uh, I had fun studying it. I I really enjoyed and I thought of a lot of different things to put in here. We're only going to cover seven verses. So we're going to start with verse one. It says, the Apostle Peter says, Likewise, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Now, that definition, okay, fabas, uh, has, has changed. And the reason being is because when we go to verse 6, he tells the wives not to be afraid. So there's more of a, a reverential uh, attitude there. It says, Do not let your beauty be that outward adorning of arranging the hair, or of wearing gold, or of putting on fine apparel. But let it be with the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible ornament of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Likewise, you husbands, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. So the first question I have is, why am I up here? Didn't I say I was going to have Dave teach this? Okay, he's not moving. Um, The second point is that uh, we had a guest speaker last Sunday. And two Sundays ago, I knew I was going to teach this. So I got a guest speaker, hoping that within the two weeks, he would give me a buffer in case the rapture happened. (laughs) But I'm here. Listen, if you've had... A crisis, if you had trouble in your marriage, if you had a bad experience, you will initially chafe at this based on your own, uh, you, you may, you may not, based on your own experiences, maybe a little standoffish, or maybe you may read this and look at this for your spouse. I really hope he hears this today. And he's thinking, I hope she hears this today. So we're going to try to, you know, parse this out and uh, we'll see how good I am under pressure. But if a marriage is in good health, right, both parties will be relaxed. See, I I know that if my wife and I were sitting right here and Pastor Anthony was teaching this, we would snicker, we would smirk, we would nudge each other in a playful way because we've been through this. We've been through the hard, difficult years of, you know, two selfish people trying to get to know each other and even though we're Christians, make it work. So there's a lot of memories. Some of them are a little painful. Some of them are funny looking back. But you'll have a different attitude depending on where you come from. Okay? Uh, If you've come from an abusive situation, don't hear what the Bible didn't say. The Bible doesn't advocate, especially for ladies, to put themselves or their children in harmful, dangerous situations. We talked about the government two weeks ago. Right? And there are laws that the government puts out. And there's laws that govern really what goes on inside a home behind closed doors. So uh, don't hear what the Bible didn't say. And be careful not to view Scripture through distorted lenses of life's experiences. I have two challenges today. The first challenge is that if you've been through a very tough or uh, uh, har- harmful situation, I challenge you to listen to the whole sermon with an open mind and an open heart, and then come to me afterwards and tell me that you view this a little bit different than the way you've heard it, 
Okay, that's the first challenge. The second challenge will be later. So, what the Bible isn't saying. I uh, was looking, doing some research, and I found myself on an atheist website. And they lumped all draconian ancient faiths together in their uh, treatment of women and things to that nature. So uh, I actually looked. I have two Korans at home. First, I'm going to tell you what the Bible didn't say. And there's a major difference between what Islam teaches and what this is saying, like night and day. Quran Surah 434. Seven translations from Arabic to English, they all say the same thing. I'm just going to go through it with you. Number one, it says, Men have authority over women because God has made the one superior to the other. The Bible teaches that we're co-heirs. And the only difference between man and a woman is that we are physically men stronger than the wives, and therefore we should be gentle with them and protect them. The second point here is that it says, and because they spend their wealth to maintain them. Uh, I don't really like that. It almost sounds like you're taking care of an, an old classic car that you have in your garage. It goes on. Good women are obedient. The Bible says that good men are also obedient, and both need to be obedient. They guard their unseen parts because God has guarded them. As for those from whom you fear disobedience, and I'm going to stop there. So he's, they're speaking, the Quran speaking to men who are concerned that their wives are in disobedience. This is the uh, advice. It has three parts. Number one, admonish them, set them to their beds apart, and three, beat them. And all translations have that. Yes, it does say that. Okay? Um, and it says, then if, you, if they obey you, take no further action against them. Surely God is high supreme. It's no surprise where this is law, Sharia law, Islamic law. Uh, we're not politically correct here, as you'll find out very quickly. Women are beaten. They're held in, in uneducation. They're forced to marry as minors, and worse things happen. Okay? I remember years ago, I was on patrol, and I went to a scene of a domestic. And I get in there, and the guy's really big. And the woman's really little. And New Jersey law says if there's signs of injury, you have to make an arrest. It's a mandatory arrest. It's domestic violence. So I'm by myself. I'm talking to her. Then I go and I talk to him. And he's annoyed with me because he says, from where I come from, we're allowed to do this without police interference. And I said, welcome to America. Put your hands behind your back. You're under arrest. <laughs> so that was my greeting, my welcome wagon speech. And that was the end of it. I'm going, to go, <laughs> I'm going to go on and read Ephesians 5, and I want to teach Ephesians 5 in context because I find that that's not often done, or especially if you hear it on the news, they'll take snippets out of it, and, and you know, they're not reading it in context, and of course it's going to sound... And, and I'm not apologizing for God's Word. Please, don't get me wrong. I make no apologies for God's Word, but I just know that we have to study that in context. So Ephesians 5. Before we get there, Ephesians 4 is an exhortation to unity. Two, it's for the proper use of spiritual gifts, and that all believers have spiritual gifts. Three, it's to put off the old man, the flesh, the carnality, and put on the new man, to walk in the Spirit, and not grieve or quench the Holy Spirit. Going to Ephesians 5, it starts out with walk in love as Christ walked in love. Walk as the children of light. Six, be filled again with the Holy Spirit. And seven, submit or give deference to one another. Okay, now let me read Ephesians 5, 22. It says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, 
and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. And before I continue, I think that the command, not the suggestion to the men, is even more difficult. You know, I love my wife. Um, you know, I often find myself putting her needs and, and things before me or what we want to do or things to that nature. Uh, but I see that for me to love my wife as Christ loved the church, that's high. And all I can do is look up at that and keep trying to achieve that standard, but I'm never going to get there on this side of eternity. And this, sometimes I get frustrated with myself because I always have this in the forefront of my mind. So to ask me to be like the Son of God, man, that's hard to do. Even as your pastor, I find it very difficult. Okay, so, but this is cool because God doesn't ask us to do easy things. He asks us to do the right thing. He asks us to do what he wants us to do. And it's not always going to be easy. Verse 30, For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. You see this back and forth, these analogies, these parallels, right? Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So, first, or excuse me, Ephesians 5. The Apostle Paul, pretty much, if you take Ephesians 4 and 5 together, he's making generalities with the Christian community. He's telling us all that there's you know, many guidelines that we need to live by. And really, we can't even live by these guidelines unless we're in the Spirit, unless we're drawing from the strength of Christ. It's a very difficult thing to do. But, it's, but nevertheless, it's commanded. Okay? 1 Peter 3, which we just read before we went to Ephesians uh, 5, in 1 Peter 3, the Apostle Peter here attacks the same thing from the individual believer's perspective. And we all would say, my part, me. When I look in the mirror, who's the person that I need to change the most? The one that I see when I look in the mirror. My part. We all speak about revival. Oh, we want to see our country revived to the glory days of when we followed Judeo-Christian ethics. Um, however, I've often heard it say that uh, revival starts with you, right? Starts with you and your relationship and your family and your community and your church and your state and your country and the world. You see, it goes out in concentric circles. So we look at this scripture in 1 Peter 3 and we say, what can I do? Now, understanding this whole thing with the husband and wife, it all boils down to two things, love and respect. There was a book written, very, actually it was like 200 some odd pages, I think you could have made it a little bit more concise, but it was biblical, it was a great book, and I recommend it. Uh, it's, it says, Love and Respect, The Love She Most Desires, and The Respect He Desperately Needs, by uh, Dr. Emerson Egricks. If you, if you listen to Calvary Chapel pastors and um, uh, Ken Gra Pastor Ken Graves in Maine, he kind of has an idyllic 
simplified uh, version of how the man and the woman are. He says that, you know, even as little boys and teens, you know, they want to be the superheroes. They want to do the saving. He said they don't know what they're saving yet. It's just in them, right? And the, the girls, you know, they're, they're a certain way as they grow up and they're uh, to be delicate and they're to be gentle and uh, to be taken care of, right? And what he basically says is that a man's great desire, aside from knowing the Lord, as a husband, is to be the hero of his home. Now, I would say I agree with that. You know, I mean, I get no greater purpose in life than when my wife and my son look at me as their, look at me as their hero. Hence the whole bat thing with the fishing net. <laughs> I didn't know how I was going to do it. I didn't know if I was going to get bit, bit by the stupid thing. But my wife thought I could do it. So, heck, I'll put the S on my chest and I'll run out there with the fishing net and look like a fool. <laughs> because she thinks I can do it. You know, whatever the problem is, she calls me. So uh, that's just how she looks at me. And the woman wants to be rescued by the prince, you know, by the one who's going to sweep her off her feet, the one who's going to rescue her from the castle, you know, and it's just that whole kind of fairy tale kind of thing. And, and you know, then we live our normal lives and day-to-day stuff, and sometimes that kind of rubs off and we have to kind of rekindle things. But that's the basic thing that we're looking at. Now, here's where the problem comes in. The problem comes in, and I've seen this in counseling, and I don't judge anybody. I know that when I'm counseling a couple who's having a hard time, they're in pain. They're hurting, right? And what I see is the man will do things to make the wife think like he's pulling his love away from her. And she becomes unstable. And you can see this every, every time. Or the woman will do things or say things about the husband. He's not a man. He can't even get a job. I mean, just really hurtful things. And you can see him start to shut down. So when the woman disrespects the husband, we crave that respect. And the husband, even perceived, takes the love away from the, from the wife. You can see chaos. It's his downward spiral. And then I have to kind of put on my striped shirt and the whistle and, you know, hey, that's out of bounds. Don't do that. Let's, let's move forward here. And that's what happens sometimes in counseling. But here's when it works. Uh, a wonderful couple. I was uh, given permission to use this. Uh, the Sheridan sitting right in front of me. Last Sunday, I officiated at their 30-year wedding rededication. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> but I remember one thing Andrea said about John. She said, you know, I, I submit to my husband. I respect him as my leader. And she said, and it really, really came and I'm not sure the words that she used, but when she had a, an accident where she hurt her body and she couldn't use one side of her body or shoulder and stuff, she said, my husband nurtured me, he took care of me, he nursed me back to health. And you could see her eyes. I mean, there's some women that, yeah, I respect my husband, and they're rolling their eyes. But she, she spoke to me as, as he was the most dreamy man she ever met. And she rolled her eyes in a different way. But that's when it works. The husband loved his wife as Christ loved the church. And the wife submits to her husband's leadership. That's when it works. And I see this with the elderly. And I tell you what, I, even if I'm in the parking lot or going to the store and it's an elderly couple and they're really old and one of them's, you know, starting to lose their faculties and the other one's helping them along. It just breaks your heart. You know, you just come to tears when they become, you know, any, any physical faculty that's starting to be let go. And whether it's the husband or the wife, they take care of each other. It's pretty amazing to see. So let's go back to 1 Peter, verse 1 and 2. Likewise, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives, when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. 
So he says likewise, or in the same manner. And basically, we just got finished with what he was speaking about citizens obeying the government and giving them the authority to run day-to-day operations of the community. So he's saying likewise, in the same manner, women, you need to trust your husbands. You need to give them authority that you need to be submissive to their leadership. Now, the word submissive is very interesting. It's reflexive, which means that it comes back to the person who's, who's, who's trying to do it. So in other words, the wife looks at this on her own and says, this is my duty to do, whereas nobody can make her. See, the husband can't make the wife. And I have to admit, as a young husband, I got caught up in this a few times. Baby, you need to be submissive to me. It doesn't work like that. This is the wife's instructions. I have my own instructions. You know, don't pay attention to what she's doing. I need to mind my own business, right? So that we see that there. So it's voluntarily. And it just means that the husband is given authority as the leader. Now, a few things. Number one, it says, it keeps saying to her own husband, there are, back in the Roman days, even today, I know some missionaries who talk to me about going overseas and they go to some of these countries. And it's a very different culture. You go to some of these cultures and uh, the women have, you know, they're going to the well and drawing the water. They're making the fires. They're cooking the meals. What are the men doing? They're sitting under a tree, smoking a pipe, talking to each other, watching the women work. And (laughs) the missionaries say, you know, it's very hard to break that cultural stereotype. We have to teach the men, you shouldn't be doing that. You shouldn't be making your wife do all the work. So in some cultures the woman actually has to listen to any male in the village. She's, whatever any male tells her to do, she's got to listen. And I'm sure that was being addressed because in that time in the Roman Empire, there were some cultures that they, they did that. The second thing is just like with the, the government, the men, the husband can't ask the wife to do anything that's unbiblical. Understand? Just like when we submit to the government, government asks us to do something unbiblical, we say, no, that's when we have to break the rules. So in this instance, the wife is not to submit to anything unbiblical. Now, I must say that, uh, ladies, I'm sorry, but house chores are not unbiblical. <laughs> Before you throw something at me, <laughs> you know, I love to do the dishes. I really do. Um, and it's funny, my wife and I fight over who's going to do the dishes because we do them differently. And I think my way's better and she thinks her way's better. And I just find myself getting dishpan hands. <laughs> okay, let me move on. All right. Verse 1. If the husbands don't obey the word. Now, this is to say that even in the case where the woman is saved, she's a believer, and the husband is not. Uh, In other words, ladies, less preaching and more example. To the point where the guy just steps back and looks at his wife and says, you know, he doesn't know the Lord, but he's just got this incredible wife. And it always has to go back to the reason why she's that way is because of the Holy Spirit in her and what, you know, she's doing through learning the word. Now, I'm just going to give you two jokes, one on the woman's side, one on the man's side. And I think I've told these before, but maybe not with a blended fellowship. So you got this story where um, Christian woman, she's married to a guy who's unsaved and she, you know, she goes to bed at night and he says, I'm going out with the boys and going drinking. So they go out with the boys and they close the bar down at three in the morning. So he says to his friends, you know, let's go home, you know, we'll go home and I'll have the old lady make us breakfast. And they're like, what are you, crazy? She'll kill you. No, 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 come on, let's do it. So he brings them all home. They're in the kitchen. He wakes her up. Honey, 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 I need you to make us breakfast. 
So she pops up out of bed, puts something on, puts her hair in a bun, goes over to the kitchen, and she starts scrambling eggs, and she's humming a tune. And the friends are looking at the wife, and their jaws just drop and hit the table. So one of them has the courage and says, we don't get it. And she says, guys, my husband is going to hell. And I'm just trying to make his life comfortable before he gets there. (laughs) All right? But the element here is that the wife, the unsaved wife wins her, or the saved wife wins her unsaved husband to Christ. She wins him over, right? And the improper assumption too, which is reflected in the joke, is that just because the guy's unsaved, he's a tyrant. That's not necessarily the case. I know many unsaved men who, who uh, husbands who sometimes put Christian husbands to shame. Uh, and unfortunately, the divorce rate is actually very similar between Christians and non-Christians. There's a problem there. We're doing something wrong in the Christian community, okay? Okay, so basically what we have is that in a functional marriage, the man is a leader, and he's like Jesus. He was the servant leader. Jesus led by washing the disciples' feet. He led by example. He led by humility, right? Uh, And the man makes decisions as a spiritual leader that benefit the whole family. And if the man's doing it right, that the family is benefited before he gets benefited, so not that, you know, the guy leaves church today and he's like, oh, this is great. I feel empowered. I'm the spiritual leader. Family, sit down. I'm going to buy a boat for us. I mean me. I mean us. You know what I'm saying? That's not the way it goes, right? It's to look at the family and his wife and his kid before he looks at himself. All right, that's important. Uh, and if the man is doing it right, when his decisions are unpopular, it's because he's trying to do the right thing. So it would be more... Uh, understandable if a man would go home, have his family sit down and say, I was really moved by the message. You know, we need to get more involved with the things of God. We're so involved with the things of the world. You know, I want things to change here because we're going to really benefit and be blessed by getting more involved with the things of God. That is a true, maybe unpopular decision. You know, we're going to do less. We're going to sacrifice, have less recreation, less this, less that, and more of the things of God. Maybe unpopular, but it would be the right thing to do as a, as a spiritual leader. So the man is supposed to be a moral compass that emulates Jesus Christ. Now going to verse 3. He says, Do not let your beauty be that outward adorning of arranging the hair or wearing gold or of putting on fine apparel, but let it be with the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible ornament of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. Now, again... Gentle and quiet spirit doesn't mean you can't talk. (laughs) Some have misconstrued that. It's in the spirit. When I looked up the Greek words, number one, it's a humility, it's a stillness, and it's the ability to be undisturbed in the face of uh, circumstances. Now, Psalm 46.10, God says, be still and know that I am God. He doesn't mean stop fidgeting, stop tapping your hands, you know, be a statue. Be still in the heart. Because know that I am God. If we re- the more we know who God is and his character and his design for our life, the more still we are in the face of these external circumstances that come upon us. So that's important to understand. And basically what it means is, and it doesn't mean, and some have misconstrued this. I don't know why people have to do this. They read the Bible and they take things out of context. There are some pseudo-Christian groups that believe you should never wear makeup. 
you should never wear jewelry, you should never arrange your hair because that's what it says. No, it doesn't say that. What it says is that what's inside is more important than what's on the outside, in a nutshell. See, in Roman society, remember, let's go back to the time, I love to do this, you go back to the time of the Romans when this was written. In Roman society, fashion and makeup was just as cutting edge as, as, cutting edge as aqueducts and arches. He just was saying, don't focus on it. And really, it goes back to what it says in Scripture, that man and woman look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. God always sees what's inside. He's not that concerned with our appearance, okay? American Christians can get caught up in the same trap, right? We have everything here. Too much focus on the outward appearance alone breeds a shallowness. And then what happens when the looks fade over the years? Well, this is what they do in Hollywood. Nip, tuck, nip, tuck. Have you had work done? You know, back and forth, back and forth, because they're trying to fight against the aging process because their whole focus is external experience. They live in an uh, uh, appearance-generated industry. But the question is, what happens when, when that fades, right? What happens when that fades? And that's the only thing we're focusing on. Then there's nothing left because we haven't developed that inward character, that inward uh, man or woman. Verse 5, for in this manner in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. So Abraham and Sarah are used as an example here, more specifically Sarah. Uh, They were the parents of the nation of Israel, and they had an interesting relationship. Sarah respected her husband and submitted to him. However, Abraham, if you read the Genesis account, listened to his wife a lot, and and he took her counsel. They were kind of a neat couple. Unfortunately, though, Abraham, especially when it came to having kids, listened to some bad advice from his wife, but you could see he was open to her suggestions. There was that relationship there. And he says, not afraid with any terror. Remember, if you study Greco-Roman society, there were no domestic violence laws, and, and, the men had a a superior attitude towards the women, and this is how you know that. Because if you look at the Greek and Roman pantheon, you know, the array of gods and goddesses, of course they were made up. But if you look at the female goddesses, they were capricious, they were vindictive, they were mean. So what is that? That's just a, a reflection of the men's psyche at the time of the women, and they put it in the form of how they made their goddesses. You understand? They were seductive, they were sexual. They, so the, the picture of the woman from the man's uh, psyche or standpoint was not a very good picture. And what God is saying, or what Peter's saying, is if you do it the Lord's way, you have nothing to fear. Don't fear the outcome. Don't fear your husband. Don't fear the results. And you may even save your husband. Now, here's a broader application. If we do what the Bible says, forget about this. Let's go to any scripture in, in this book. If we do what the Bible commands us to do as individual believers, men or women, whatever your situation is, we don't have to fear. We can be still. We can be undisturbed because we know as long as we're pleasing God, God has a plan and we trust him with the outcome. So we can make even a broader application than what we're reading today. Verse 7. It's only one verse, but it, it packs quite a punch and there's a few elements to this. It says, likewise, you husbands dwell with them with your wives, with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. 
So let's look at this. Number one, we're commanded to live with our wives with understanding. Now, that's not easy. <laughs> we're very... <laughs> oh, I didn't think I was going to get that much of a response out of that. <laughs> you know what's funny? Humans are no different. 2,000 years ago, 6,000 years ago, we're men, we're w- women. Why does God do this to us? He makes men so different than women and vice versa. And then he says, now come together and play nice in the sandbox. You know, we need these instructions, right? We need these instructions. So now let me just give you a, um, a joke from the other side, okay? All right. So for whatever reason, I don't even remember the beginning of it, but this guy, his husband, and the Lord are talking, and the Lord says, you know, I'm going to give you anything you want, but you only get one shot at it. So the guy goes, well, you know, I live in New York, and I love Hawaii, and I don't, I'm afraid to fly. I don't like taking boats. Can you just, like, make a super highway from New York all the way down to Hawaii? And God goes, that's a lot of work. Think about all the girders and all the interference with the other land masses and then going into the water and stuff. And he goes, y- you have like a second one that you'd, you know, second wish that maybe I could grant that and said. So the guy goes, you know, I really, really want to understand women. And God goes, do you want two or four lanes with that highway? <laughs> Guys, stop clapping. You're going to get hit. You're going to get hit when you get home. (laughs) I heard you make fun of that joke. Okay, moving on. You know, and and you look at this from both perspectives. The the guys, us guys. And and I can be a little tougher on the guys. uh, But... In, in whether it's the, the husband or the wife, the man also was not made to be the human Mac machine either. And I don't mean it even from the family standpoint, but sometimes guys will, uh, and it depends on your family situation, they'll throw money at their family to avoid communication and being the leader. Well, just make them happy. Yeah, go buy whatever you want. And it's, it can be a form of laziness. I'm going to read to you something that uh, Dr. Dobson spoke about, his, I guess, discussion with a, a husband. Dr. Dobson says, a man said, quote, I don't understand my wife. She has everything she could want, a dishwasher, a new dryer, a nice house. I've been faithful and I don't drink, but she's miserable. I can't figure out why, end quote. And Dr. Dobson says, his love-starved wife would have traded everything for a single expression of genuine tenderness from her unromantic husband. Appliances do not build self-esteem. Being somebody's sweetheart most certainly does. Well, he said it pretty good there, I, I believe. Two, the second part of this verse is to give honor to the wife as the weaker vessel. Now, <laughs> my, okay, my wife and I, we do a lot of physical labor. We do our own landscaping. You know, we, we're very physical people. So, you know, I know that when we come in the house, we just want to take a rest, maybe just sit on the couch for a little bit. And she takes her feet and she plops them right on my lap. I know that means, especially if she's wiggling her toes, rub my feet. <laughs> And she'll distract me until I do it. Or uh, she'll just plop herself down, sit in front of me, and she'll go, that means rub my neck. Oh, I got, or she'll go like this. All right, all right, I got gotcha, you, I got gotcha. you. So one day I said, you know, I'm rubbing your feet, I'm rubbing your neck, I'm rub- rubbing your back. I'm like, I got muscles too. I mean, you do me for like 10 seconds and then you're done. She goes, Joe, I'm the weaker vessel. That is so not fair. You grew up in Philly. I mean, come on. But, you know, I don't, I don't ask that question anymore because you just can't after that. But a smart husband knows that, uh, you know, to treat his wife like that expensive, priceless, delicate vessel. And that's what we're supposed to do. 
You know, they can't take the same amount of stress that we can. Uh, and, and God says not to let them do that. We're supposed to take the brunt for our wives. We're supposed to treat them with that tenderness. We're supposed to um, treat them like, you know, just precious. All right? They're that, that weaker vessel. And again, that doesn't mean intellectually. It doesn't mean mentally. And it doesn't mean spiritually. It only means physically. Obviously, you take, you know, a man and a woman, which is just a change in body mass and muscle mass, and, and it's just the way God made it, uh, and probably so we could take care of them like that, and it's something that we should look at. What's interesting is that uh, in the case of Abigail and Nabal, how many of you remember the story in the Old Testament of Abigail and Nabal? It's a great story. Actually, Nabal, her husband, his name Nabal meant fool. He was an idiot, <laughs> to, to, to put it in layman's terms. But basically... He, David needed, you know, him and his men were hungry, you know, they're running from King Saul and, and they're just worn out and they need water and, and they want, you know, they, Nabal's property is there and he's got a lot and, you know, they need to be refreshed and Nabal refuses. So uh, David gets furious. He wants to kill Nabal. So Abigail, Nabal's wife, actually secretly gets a bunch of stuff and food and servants and she goes out to, to meet David and appease his anger and give them what they needed, their supplies to refresh them. And it stops King, or he's not the king yet, he stops David from uh, killing her husband. Now, she disobeyed her husband, but she saved his life, you know? If she would have just left things the way they were, Nabal would have been dead. So you, you, you got to look at this, but you got to use common sense too. And it was a really neat case of a wife who just was far superior to her husband, right? Uh, the third point, it says being heirs together of the grace of life or co-heirs or joint heirs. Ephesians, Paul says, the man loves his wife as his own body. No one hated his own flesh, but nurtures and cherishes it. If the man treats his wife harshly, he's being self-destructive. If a man is married to, to a woman and he treats her harshly, he's, first of all, he's harming himself spiritually, but he's, he's also harming himself in that there could be so much more fruit with the two of them and he's just being uh, short-sighted and char- he just wants to get what he wants to get, right? I have to realize this too. My wife is God's daughter. If I treat her poorly, I eventually will answer for it. And in the past, I have answered for it, right? Uh, the fourth point, failure to do so will result in hindered prayers. Wow, wow. Now listen, as men, again, are we gonna, that, that standard of Jesus, uh, Christ loving the church, that's a high standard. Uh, maybe when we're self-centered or we do things that just uh, benefit us, it is quite possibly that some of those prayers, just God's like, I'm not going to honor it. You haven't uh, succeeded in the mandate that I've given you about treating your wife. This is good stuff to look at. Now, you've seen this uh, where a couple is in a deadlock. You know, it's, and he says, well, I'll treat her like Christ loved the church if she submits to me. And she says, it's more than you think. And she says, well, I'll submit to him and respect him if he treats me like Christ loved the church. You almost feel like saying, okay, all right, well, it's not going to work that way. You both just got to do it. So I'm going to count to three. And at three, you treat her like Christ loved the church and you submit to him. One, two, three, go. And this is what you deal with sometimes. And basically, you can really boil it all down to this, dying to self, right? Dying to self. And I know my wife covered that at the women's devotion. If we don't die to ourselves, we're not going to get anywhere. We're not going to get anywhere with our spouses, with our children, with friends, with others in the church, with our coworkers. It's called die to self. Jesus, not only did he die on the cross, but he died while he was living. Think about that. He died to himself. 
with these disciples that it took them so long to get what he was saying. Uh, most of them deserted him, right? And he would tell them things over and over again and they wouldn't get it. He had to die to himself, otherwise he wouldn't have been able to deal with them. So it's something to look at. Now, four extremes for the husband and wife, and this is good too. I know we have the teens in here today. You know, if you one day you think about getting married, this is some real good practical advice that you need to understand. I know my son, he's a great kid. Those of you who know my son, he's wonderful. He's a great 10-year-old. But he, um, he has a, just a strong tendency to always see things from his point of view, and that's hard for him. And even when he deals with other kids, and, you know, it's about playing with his... He wants the kids, and he is generous, but sometimes he gets, oh, well, it's my turn to play the game, whatever. And I take him aside, I'm like, Josiah, you've got to be like Christ. You've got to die to yourself. Let them come and be blessed, or a kid that has less than him. So that, that's important to look at, whether it's a man or a woman. So the four extremes of a husband and a wife... Husband's extremes. The first one is probably the worst out of the four. He's cruel, he's controlling, he's abrasive, abusive. He just looks to have power over his wife. And I've heard this said before, and I agree with it. If you look at some of these women's organizations that tend to be very militant, you can always trace something in their past back to a man who either cheated on her or a, a perversion with an uncle or a grandfather or a... Uh, you know, a, a, a husband that beat her, and then she builds up this wall, and she says, that's not going to happen to me again, and she's looking for empowerment. So this type of man doesn't realize the, the damage that he does to his family and those around him, right? The other extreme of a man is lazy, uncaring, uninvolved, uncommunicative. He's basically a spiritual couch potato. Uh, lets his wife do everything, uh, basically... He, he doesn't really want to lift a finger to do much. And he makes his wife now step into his role. We see that in Genesis. That will happen if a man leaves that void. The wife, women, women make great leaders. She'll step into that role, into the family. And what will happen will, will be she'll bear the stress and the brunt of everything on the family because he's just not concerned. So that's the two extremes for her husband. Now, for the wife, the first one, uh, she receives abuse because she thinks she deserves it. No self-worth. Right? And this is the type of woman that domestic violence laws were made for. And when they teach us as police officers in training, separate the husband and wife before you talk to them. Don't talk to her in his presence because she will not give it up. She will lie for him. She's terrified of him. And sometimes it takes some deprogramming to get this woman to really open up about what's going on in the house. Right? So it's, it's training for law enforcement. Here's the other extreme for a wife. And I've seen this. She's nasty. <laughs> the family walks on eggshells around her. She holds the family hostage due to her emotional swings and rages. And I've seen this too. She emasculates her husband. Right? That's not a pretty picture of a woman. My advice, guys, if you think about getting married and you're going to continue your life as a bachelor and you can only think about yourself, do everyone a favor and stay single. Ladies, if you can't submit to a man's leadership, if you want to be pampered all your life, and you don't want to be a spiritual partner with a man, stay single. Do, do everybody a favor. There's a lot of unmarriable uh, singles in the body of Christ today, and again, it's that self-centeredness thing, and it's reflected in the Christian divorce rate. So, what is this supposed to look like? Husband and wife, kind of when you get into a groove, and, and there's a term in pharmacology called the synergistic effect. It's a scientific term. If you take drug A, 
it'll do it'll give you like a 50% benefit you tr take drug B it'll give you a 20% benefit however if you take them together you don't get 70 you get 150 it's called the synergistic effect right and and they, it's science they play with these things to get a, a you know a compounding effect when we're married uh, if two people are working alone and they're working for the Lord, they can really be a blessing. If two people are married and they have a, a, you know, they're had a really difficult marriage, that together they can't even serve the Lord. So even both of their uh, abilities together cause a negative effect. If two people are married and they're really in harmony and the husband and wife are working together to serve the Lord, you get that synergistic effect. So it's amazing what, the, what I've seen in couples that serve the Lord together, right? My wife, I'll just say on a personal level, submits to me. But if you know her, she's got moxie. She's no wallflower. Uh, she's my vice president in the home. And she has actually stopped me, like Abigail, from making some dumb decisions. <laughs> Sometimes I vocalize, you know, I think I'm going to do this, and maybe it's out of emotion. She goes, you can't do that. Why not? And she explains it to me. I'm like, oh, you're right. I can't do that. <laughs> so it works. Uh, a good leader also doesn't have to lord it over those in the house. Uh, I talk about, we've been married in about 14 years, and sort of like the President of the United States, they have these ex executive orders they can sign, and they don't have to go through Congress, and they just get stuff done. Maybe a handful of times in 14 years, I've had to say, you know what, I really feel strongly on this. Um, this is what we're going to do because my wife and I are in harmony. We're in sync with each other. doesn't mean we don't have arguments, right? Intense fellowship. Uh, but it's, it's good. It's good. The last challenge I want to leave you before we close in prayer is this. So we had the first challenge, the second challenge. If you're struggling in a relationship, this is what I suggest. And I challenge you in six months, if it doesn't work, come back to me and say, you're out of your mind, it didn't work, you're crazy, uh, I should have never listened to you. I challenge you to come back to me. If you're having difficulties in your marriage, number one, start praying together. Start doing things together, right? Even if it's a devotional, read the word together, right? Uh, definitely serve together. My wife and I actually, when we were dating, we served in arraignment food ministry in Broken Loaves. Uh, and it was really cool. We were just both excited about the stories and, wow, you check this out. And the, so to serve together, to do things together, to even be involved with other couples that you know have good marriages and glean off of them. Do that for six months. And I guarantee you, if you really want it, both of you, your lives will change. Now, for those of us or for those of you who have good marriages, a good marriage can always get better. It always gets more precious, 30 years, 40 years. Um, so some people here are married 50 years or more. That's amazing. And, and you can just see they're inseparable. They're like glue. They're, they finish each other's sentences. We can also improve on our marriages. So my suggestion is that we, if we really are submissive to the Lord, uh, we really will be blessed by the Lord, and we, in turn we will bless him and those around us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word. As usual, Lord, we thank you that uh, you have made us different. And many times uh, with the husband and wife, Lord, we...